0: Hi, this is Mike Zapsik from a Shared Universe podcast studio, and you're listening to Talking Codswallop Podcast. Hey, it's Taylor from Calling the Shots. Hey, this is Steve from Calling the Shots.
1: Hey, what's up? It's Mike from the Pizza Beer Revolution Podcast.
0: Hi, this is uh, Derek D. <laughs> from PBR Podcast and DerekD.com, of course. And you are listening to Talking Codswallop, Talking Codswallop. How you guys doing? This is great. This is the POTUS it's President of the United States,
1: Donald. You're looking to, to wall up the swallowing. That's what you're listening to. It's great. I gotta tell you, the swallow of the wall is great. I love walls. And the cod wallop, it's swallow. Fantastic. You're listening to it. Wallops, cods. Fish, walls, swallows. <laughs> I am here today talking to the wonderful and brilliant Caroline Bliss. Caroline will be known to a lot of people from her acting roles, but we are here today to discuss her acting to a small level, but we're looking to discuss the wonderful work she's doing now. So, um, hello and welcome, Caroline. Thank you for taking the time to come and be interviewed by me.
0: Hello, and, and thank you for asking me.
1: So one of my first questions was going to be if you could tell me a bit about yourself and your background, please.
0: Okay. Um, well, my background was was I was born to two actors who were no longer acting for various mm-hmm. reasons, and um, so it wasn't a theatrical household. They didn't really talk about acting. My father ended up teaching driving, and my mother was a full time mum, and. It was quite a chaotic... We, we were all quite uh, creative people, I suppose, and it's quite a sort of chaotic mm-hmm. household. My sister, my older sister, was mentally handicapped, as okay. we called it in those days, um, mm-hmm. and they thought she would die, uh, but she lived... It was measles and encephalitis, and wow. um, she's still alive, and she's the most wonderful, vibrant member of our family. We all adore her. Um, but I think it was just you know it was a struggle and then there was my brother and then there was I and so when I grew up I didn't have a sense of career or what it was to be a creative I didn't I didn't know who I was or what I was but I used to love dancing in my room and um Just, you know, I would put on Swan Lake, you know, Mm -hmm. or I would put on whatever and and dance away. Um, And that was, I really, really loved that. I was, I guess I could have been quite academic. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, I went to Godolphin and Latimer School when it was a grammar school. So I had to pass the test to get in. And it was a very tough school. It, it wasn't a very gentle, loving school, and I think I'm quite a gentle person, so mm-hmm. I, I found it very hard. And I think because of that, I didn't really want to continue with school. Um, I think when I when I look at some of my other friends' uh, roots, and I and I see the fun they had at school and all the mm-hmm. friends they made, and, and a much more uh, caring atmosphere, and I look at I look at school. Some obviously schools now. Some of the schools that my boys have been to, and I think well that that would have been much more fun, much more me. So I did leave. I left school, you know, fairly early, and mm-hmm. saw one day Shirley MacLaine on the television um, dancing and singing her heart out, and and I thought that's that's what I want to do. That's who I mm-hmm. want to be. So. I I, I sort of launched into a, a sort of, yeah, a very kind of lost sense of I, that's what I want to do. I want to be Shirley MacLaine. I want to be a star. I want to dance. And, and that's kind of as far as I'd got. It was, it was a strange route when mm-hmm. I look back at it and not very guided by my dear parents who I think were probably as, as confused as I was about you know how you how you bring people into the world of of jobs and careers, and so they just supported me, which was lovely, really. Yes, you know, you want to dance? Let's look at dance schools. So that's the route I took.
1: And it's very good to see that there was a support you know a support there from your parents because you hear unfortunately all the times when people mention to you know their parents that are going to. They're wanting to follow a less academic uh, career, should we say, or a less traditional sort of career. That there's, there's almost a they sort of withdrawal and the sort of shock, aren't they? And it's sort of like... Yes. They, they can't sort of fathom that the creative side of a person wishes to be nurtured and they want to try and go into something else.
0: Well, I I, I think that's very true. But when you look at families, they like to stay within the known or the parents feel comfortable within the known so I had creative parents Mm -hmm. and they knew how difficult it was to be an actor which is probably why they didn't say to me why don't you try acting (laughs) because they knew that that was a precarious world I think they just sort of let me find my way and um and so dancing was was a creative route so therefore okay well we know that you can go to dance school and you can be a dancer if that's what you want to do because it was a world that wasn't frightening for them yeah. but i think a lot of a lot of non creative parents are frightened by a creative child And uh, not frightened by the child, but frightened by how to support them. I mean, a lot of people have said to me, oh, I I think my daughter or my son wants to go into acting. But how on earth do you do that? I wouldn't know where to start. And for me, it's like, well, it's really easy. It's really obvious. You You try and get into drama school. Um, or if not, you'd go to university and study drama if you've got any kind of decent A-levels. And and from there, things kind of open up and you try and find an agent. And it it's a route that feels really obvious to me. But, but these parents are like, really? Well, could you guide us? Could you help us? Because that doesn't make sense to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas if we'd had... You know, our two boys, We, my husband and I have had two boys, and if our boys had said, oh, we, we would like to be accountants or we'd like to go into business, we'd have thrown up our, our, our arms in horror and said, <laughs> oh, I, oh, my God, I don't know how to support you in that. You know, how are we going to do that? So, you know, I think it's just the known, isn't it? We like to stay in the known.
1: And within your family as well, was obviously you saying that your parents had sort of gone out of the acting a career. Uh, am I correct in thinking that uh, you have a, within your family, there is a, a musical heritage?
0: That's right. Yes. My my mother's father was Sir Arthur Bliss.
1: Okay. And do you have any memories you could share about your, your, your grandfather?
0: Yes. Um, I, I regret that I didn't know him more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember uh, sitting in a box in the festival hall, and uh, seeing this incredible, um, charismatic figure that was my grandfather stride onto the stage and take up the baton and conduct one of his pieces. And the music was slightly beyond me, Mm -hmm. it's challenging music, I'm appreciating it more and more now, the more I listen to it. but uh, yes, that was a that was a, a a very strong memory of of how incredible he was.
1: Wow, I mean that's a, a wonderful memory to have as well. You seeing him, you know, we, you know, with his profession, you know, actually doing his profession, seeing the, the yes. wonderful impact he you know he can have on people. Now you're saying about acting, obviously the well, initially your interest was in going to dance. So what caused the shift? In going from dance to to acting,
0: well, I think two things. First of all, m- my body is not really um, a dancer's body. For in, in that, I mean that a dancer's a dancer needs to have a natural turnout, mm-hmm. um, shoulders, hips, and also the, uh, the 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 feet need to have uh, the the you know the high arch. But the um, a, a particular instep in order to do point work. But even if you go into, you know, I was more interested in maybe ballet rondeau or, or you know, whatever kind of performing. You you still need a very a very flexible body that's probably built in a certain way. So although my body looks like a dancer's body, it 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 it, it wouldn't really behave. And so, for instance, I did train at the dance school um, at Ballet Rambert, and, and they brought this up and said, look, you know, you're a beautiful dancer, but actually uh, it's going to be hard for you. So um, I, I think that was one main reason But I think the other. Well, three reasons. And another reason is that I don't sing. Uh, I don't sing well. I don't I don't I'm not comfortable with. Uh, tuning you know mm-hmm. a piano once I'm started in the right in the right key I'm fine yes. you know <laughs> it's not it's not a, a gift that I have and mm-hmm. um and also the th- the third reason is that I I just went down a couple of cul-de-sacs really uh, I ended up doing cabaret dancing um which just just because You know, to go back to to guidance, none of us knew really what we were doing, and so I just followed the doors that opened. Mm -hmm. And instead of going to a proper, you know, three year course or four year course at a proper uh, dance and drama and performing arts school, I went to a little school kind of round the corner in Shepherd's Bush, and. Mm You know, did night you know, the evening classes and and was given their guidance and ended up in, as I say, in sort of cabaret, which was really going nowhere. And I was fortunate enough to meet somebody who said, "What on earth are you doing? Um, had you not thought of acting? Had mm-hmm. you thought of going to drama school?" And it sounds crazy, but I I really hadn't thought about it. But suddenly it was like the most obvious thing to do. But I'd never acted. And in my grammar school, in those days, grammar schools didn't do any uh, uh, performing arts, any theatre. We did do art, but I was useless at art. So I didn't see myself as a creative or, uh, you know, I'd never acted. And so it just hadn't occurred to me. Um but yes, so so when I was told I, I then you know again my parents were were supportive of that, and we looked into drama schools and mm. um and and so I auditioned for drama school.
1: so one of the questions I wanted to ask you was the whole see in the 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 profession of acting uh, as an actor preparing for roles, there is an extreme, it's probably one of the most extremely focused roles where you can be really scrutinized. Yeah. Uh, by a person and you always hear actors saying you have to be able to handle rejection you have to be able to handle rejection looking at it at the time and now looking at it um, in your current profession how do you handle or how do you think you would hand, be able to handle the this sort of impact upon you, from you as a person
0: um i i it's a it's a very good very deep question and there's a lot in that question. There are a lot of aspects to that question because we come immediately to the sense of ego and self and all mm. of that. And I guess all I can say is that it, as far as I was concerned, when I was young, I ha- and I see it in a lot of young people who have been supported by parents, there is a sense of excitement about life. And a sense of self belief that that um, if they passionately want to do something, they can kind of make it happen. Yeah. Not in an arrogant way, but just in a maybe they haven't failed yet.
1: Do you know what I mean? I understand what you mean. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: So so I think I think I had a, a sense of that of of this. I, I had an enormous energy an enormous drive and passion for life. And, and this kind of, I, I had this vision of wanting to connect with the world, um, I think mistakenly thinking it was through acting because I didn't know any different um, but it wasn't it wasn't even a logical I want to be an actress because I love acting or the business of acting it was a total egotistical I want to be a star I mean my ego was enormous right
1: interesting.
0: it was I w- yeah interesting I want to be a star and and by this time I'd sort of watched Shirley MacLaine's films mm-hmm. I also saw Goldie Horn um, sort of blonde or you know charismatic actresses who were not necessarily character
1: actresses. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah.
0: And and I thought I can do that. I know I can do that. Uh, bizarrely, now I look back and I and I and I know that I'm probably more of a character actress, but that was stuck in a rather young glamorous person. You know? <laughs> so it was not <laughs> gonna. I was never gonna know that but yes. that, that I had this this kind of driving force and sometimes that would just kind of sweep everything before me so I, I kind of knew the effect of it but that's not to say that that when this person said to me what on earth are you doing you know dancing you're going absolutely nowhere you should look at going to drama school that there was a real sense of of um a kind of implosion of, oh, I've, I've got it wrong, I'm going in the wrong direction. And, uh, you know, that was a first inkling of a sense of failure, a sense of panic, mm. a sense of I don't really know where I'm going. Until until suddenly I'm there auditioning for drama schools and it all came back. I thought, right, this is the direction, this is the door, and, and, and mm. there I was off again. And for some reason I got into the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School and I got into Lander. And I went to Bristol. And you're right. The the sudden spotlight on the self, I didn't cope very well with. Um, it I, I couldn't – obviously, you're not rejected at drama school, but you're criticized and you're compared. Yes. And I found that extremely difficult. And I think that what I did was I hid – I hid inside myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, and it's something I talk about with my current work, um, energies, structures of coping. I think a lot of me, um, and this may sound rather weird to some people who haven't sort of thought about where their energy is, but I think I actually uh, shot a lot of energy out of my body. I think Mm -hmm. I just wasn't very present. Mm -hmm. Um, I have very little memory of drama school. I meet up with old friends now uh, it's wonderful that, the you know, Facebook can connect you with people. And they remember so much more. I think, no, I I don't think I was really there. So I just kind of, it's like I, I just sort of closed down a bit and got through. And, and I thought, well, all these other people want to be serious actors. And a lot of them have been to university and they're all... You know, much more intelligent than me. And I just want to be Goldie Horn. So it's fine because I'll just get a bit of Mm drinking and then I'll go to Hollywood and I'll be a star. You know, it was, I was quite simplistic and quite kind of, um, I I was always five steps ahead. It was like how I was going to do that, heaven only knows. But I was already there in my head. So, So I think, I think the criticism and the rejection was seen in context of a large ego who felt she was going somewhere
1: mm-hmm. i also wonder just think about something you said earlier about when you're in grammar school uh whether you think that might have impacted at all on the fact that you were saying that they weren't sort of like the most nurturing of people where the teachers taught you there do you think that would have in some way lead to the way you saw I like, drew back into yourself under the scrutiny of uh, the teaching at the drama school
0: yes yes I think that's absolutely right I think I had also avoided a lot of the time at grammar school I don't I, I don't think I was myself um, mm. in fact one very insightful man who I was at drama school uh, with who I've since um linked up with again which is a which is a delight said to me he said my you were kind of unformed he said you were very young and kind of unformed in those days he said and and now i i meet you and it's extraordinary because you are you are totally yourself in the most profound way so that was a really beautiful thing to say but it did cast a kind of i thought i look back and i think yes i i really was flailing around
1: Wow, interesting. And an uh, interesting thing when you said about not sort of remembering large portions of uh, your work uh, and, and times at drama school, it, it rang a real bell in my head, though, which is when it comes to my days at university, because I can meet up with people I was at university with who have memories of me being at things and doing things that I seem to have no memory of. So it's, oh. it's <laughs> like I've chosen to sort of block things out.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, what we can do?
1: Mm. Very interesting. So, when it came to uh, the influence on your on acting, when you sort of at that point made the decision, this is what I really want to do, who was it who influenced you the most? You mentioned obviously Shirley MacLaine as being somebody who uh, really sort of stirred your interest. So, was she like the real template for, for what you wanted to do in acting?
0: She wasn't the template in acting. She was she was like a kind of figurehead. Um, in i guess in the same way that goldie horn was a, was a figurehead um in, in a sort of image of that's where i would like to go right. um, as i say i was always five steps ahead i wasn't really in the present mm-hmm. so um i didn't re- i didn't have a mentor or a game plan or a but but the, i was blessed with a a truly wonderful teacher at the bruslovic uh, called rudy shelley and he was he he was uh, an extraordinary man. Um, he was Prussian, and he'd he'd had an extraordinary life, and travelled across many continents, and had and had done so many uh, amazing things. I think oh I, I I can't begin to to remember now. Sorry, my 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 uh, it was a long time ago. And um, don't worry. But I I he was just one of those people who he was like nobody I'd I'd ever met and had had a wide and deep existence and he brought all of that to his teaching of acting and he was a tiny man but incredible power and I found it very hard because he didn't particularly notice me or I wasn't one of his favorites and I was very because I was quite hidden I had a big front, but I was quite hidden inside and I couldn't do a big front around him because right. there was something very truthful about him and it, it it just wouldn't have worked. So I felt very shy around him, but he had a profound effect on me of just the way of being on stage, the observations of yourself. And what was extraordinary was that years later, I did go and visit him a couple of times in Bristol um, as he got older, he was already quite old when we were at Bristol, but he he lived to a a, a ripe old age. And I, I went to visit him and he said he was writing a book. And um a, a year later, I sent him the Krishnamurti book, Freedom from yes. the And I went to then visit him in hospital. And I I had no idea if he would take to any of this. He'd never Mm -hmm. spoken philosophy. I thought, he'll think I'm mad, but I'm going to send it to him because it sort of resonates. And I walked in the door and he said, ah, darling, he said, that man wrote my book. Excellent. (laughs) And I thought, oh, yes, yes. So I had unwittingly extraordinary teaching from this man. That's
1: real. That's a beautiful thing. That is a really beautiful thing to know that he obviously had this great impact upon you, and you could give him back. Yes, uh, something that would help him in in uh, in Krishna writing. That's that's wonderful. Yes, that really is truly wonderful. Uh-huh. Now uh, I have to ask. Obviously, you were cast in the role of uh, Princess Diana, uh, and. It sort of makes me think of something. I interviewed Neil Innes, and we discussed the fact that when he would started out, one of his early uh, things was working on Magical Mystery Tour with the Beatles. Right. And I, I remember saying to him, it's sort of like a no pressure.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: It was like no pressure. How on, how did you, because the pressure, at that point, you're probably going to be playing one of the most famous people on the planet uh, at that time. How, how do you prepare for something like that?
0: Well, I think, again, the ignorance of youth, when I look back, um, and, and we're talking American ABC television here, we're not talking anything profound or, or, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a major movie that was going to hit the world. This was a sort of one of those, uh, you know, what are they called? Biopic drama, documentary things. I, I can't remember what they're called, um, and when I auditioned for it, I remember thinking, this is ridiculous. This isn't one, this isn't the direction I want to go in because this is playing a woman that's alive. And two, I, I can't see that I can really play Lady Diana. Mm-hmm. So I went to the interview, and of course the, uh, they were all American in the interview. And and being partly American and, and partly Canadian myself, I'm very there's almost no English in me. I feel very at home auditioning in that in those circumstances because mm-hmm. there's a there's a freedom, yes. and a sense of humour often that that ties with my own. So I I immediately felt at home. We were all chatting away. And the panel later told me um, of the process that at this point, they and I were thinking, no, this, this isn't right. This, this girl isn't really right. And at right. one point, they said something that was, or I said something, I think, that they took in the wrong way. Um, and it embarrassed me. And it was slightly hysterical. And I literally did a gesture that I never do, or I, well, hardly ever do, put my hands to my cheeks. Mm -hmm. in a kind of oh goodness (laughs) and they all went oh my god she's done it naturally oh my god and uh, i had become you know princess diana in that moment and they all were doing thumbs up at each other in front of me and i thought i think i've done something right i think i've nailed this so the only you know the preparation what you can't prepare was watching her a bit, and um, the worst of it was that I had lots of Farrah Fawcett hair. Uh, you know, Farrah Fawcett Major mm. was that actress in Charlie's Angels, yes. and she had she had you know tons of blonde curly sort of hair. Mm, and my, hair, name, yeah. I would tame into that sort of thing, and I was rather you know this was one of my uh, hiding mechanisms was my hair, and they said, oh well, we have to cut it all off, so. Ooh. I know and they sent me to <clears throat> my my agent at the time sent me to her hairdresser which was one of the best things that came out of the whole thing because he was also a rather fabulous zen philosopher hairdresser if if you could imagine it he was a really special man is a special man and is still my hairdresser and a <laughs> friend but he said he said I'm really sorry about this as he cut my hair off <laughs> He tried to give me a long lady dye, uh, and the producers looked at it and said, "That nah, needs it shorter." Oh <laughs> dear! Then we cut it shorter, and I looked in the mirror and I thought, "Well, I look like my brother now. It's all over. It's just <laughs> you know, this is really tough." And every day, they it, they were they, my hair was such a challenge because any uh, dampness, which of course we've got a lot in England, and the whole thing goes frizzy. Mm. And it's only two years later that I learned that CBS were also making a film um, about Charles and Diana at, at exactly the same time. And they'd cast, oh, was it Catherine Oxenberg? They'd cast an actress who had long hair in it. Mm-hmm. And apparently she'd worn a wig all the way through. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. So it sort of became about the hair a bit. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I, and I, you know, I played the script. It was a simple story and and it needed simplicity. And, and you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. But it all
1: worked out wonderfully. So although they did, of course, take all your hair away from you.
0: Exactly. <laughs> it was fine. Let's put it that way. It was fine. I don't so, think many people saw it. Well,
1: it is still something that it is a historical note and historical record. So, yeah, I'd say it's important. So in the... In 1983, you worked on a film called Chess Game. And as a piece of work, it obviously has impact upon your life, but it has even more of a huge impact upon your future direction uh, because you were working with Terence Stamp, who, um, well, if, if you could pick up the story on how he impacts upon your future,
0: please. Yes. I was working with Terence Stamp, and I didn't really know much about him because he was such a big star in the sixties. And I was really too young to have seen his films. Mm -hmm. Um, but everyone had warned me that, you know, this was one of the most beautiful men I could meet. And, um, he had, I just remember as, as, as soon as I met him, he had this extraordinary presence, Mm -hmm. Um, And again, wasn't really like anyone else I had come across. There was something different, something unusual about him. And um, yes, he was very beautiful, but he also, he emanated something that was fascinating. Uh, Not necessarily peace, but just a, a depth. And so I began to talk to him about that. He'd come back from India not too long ago, and he was already on his famous health regime so he would bring a thermos of mate tea in um sweetened with a little bit of honey um and bring juiced beetroot and he talked to the crew about their health and about what they should be doing and he was just and and so i would i was inquisitive and i wanted to know all about it and I just never, never thought about life or questioning life or questioning myself or, or anything at all. And um, so he op- he just opened my eyes and he then one day gave me this book by J. Krishnamurti um, called Freedom from the Known. And when I opened it, it was like opening a long lost door to myself i i just thought this is uh this is truth this Mm -hmm. is resonating with me somewhere that this is really what i am now this is the direction i now want to go in i didn't know what that meant or anything um it was also it was also quite funny because here was a Here was a movie star who Mm -hmm. was also deeply spiritual. And so what happened was that um, my ego jumped into that and thought, well, this is even more fantastic because not only can I be a movie star. And by now I'm reading, you know, Shirley MacLaine, I think um, around that time, she, I think she wrote Out on a Limb and she was starting to, to own up about her spiritual path. And, I, and I'm thinking, this is incredible, because now I can be a major movie star. I can live in Beverly Hills <laughs> or, or on the sea. And I can, I can, you know, teach people about going beyond the ego.
1: <laughs> you
0: can have it all. I can have it all. Yes, I can live the dream. So, um, so that, yeah, I was a little bit misguided, should we say at first. But a, but a profound door had opened by working with this man.
1: And yeah, I I'm, I'm very much smiled. You saying that Terence Stamp would go and he'd be talking to sort of crew members and people about, the, you know, the health and things like that. How was the, how was that received by people? Because sometimes, unfortunately, when you mentioning things like that, people can sort of step back a little bit and be a bit unsure how to interact with somebody.
0: Oh no, uh, no, he he's got such grace, Terence. He would never impose. He was n- mm. never imposed. People would ask him, and when I say crew, it was because um he, he's got a very um he, he was much more comfortable with uh certain members of the crew yes. certain uh, just he, he's not comfortable around pretense mm-hmm. and uh you know big egos um so so he just he'd just get chatting or one of the crew would go you know hey tell what's what's that in your in your weird thermos you know or <laughs> And he'd just, he'd just be open and then he'd chat and then he'd, he'd be so sweet. He'd come in the next day and he'd he'd kind of bring a beetroot for them or he'd, you know, he was very into beetroot juice at the time. Mm-hmm. Or he'd, do you know, he was just very gentle like that. It was, you know, there's a, there's a gentleness to him that, that is is different from the, you know, from the uh, image of the actor.
1: And I was thinking that's a really wonderful thing to hear because I have, Unfortunately, speaking with some people who work in the acting profession, uh, you hear the stories of, uh, in fact, a very, very famous actor who I was trying to read word with him, who said, unfortunately, the image that this person projects uh, being very nice, being very friendly, etc. it's the polar opposite from the reality of who you yeah. are when you work. With them. And that's mm. always a sad thing to, to hear, but it's a wonderful thing when you hear that Terence Stamp is so nice and giving and open with people. Yes, yes. So, progressing with your career, we uh, we come to, to discussing probably the role you are most famous uh, for, almost well known to to people, which is obviously playing the part of Miss Moneypenny in the James Bond film. So I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about the casting process of how you were uh, how you become a member of the Bond family, so to speak.
0: Okay, so um again, it's 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 a very logical route. My agent phoned me up and said they're casting for the role of Miss Moneypenny. Um you've got an interview, you know, tomorrow two o'clock sort of thing. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, no. I mean, it really is. It's very straightforward. <laughs> for me, it's much—you know—it's it, it, it's much more straightforward than, than doing what people think is a normal job, um, because especially for actors, you're told what to do. You go and do it. You know, really. So, um, to be honest, I had seen the Bond films, but I wasn't—I uh, wouldn't say that I was uh, a huge. Fan of James Bond films per se, um, it wasn't something on my radar. Um, again, if you if you want to carve out a career, uh, you know, as a movie star in the vein of how I'm thinking, to to be Miss Moneypenny is a kind of strange side shoot, you yes. know, because at that point, Lois Maxwell was the um, only person who'd played the role, if you discount, I think there was another little one in there. Um, There was an offshoot Bond. But but Lois Maxwell had played Miss Moneypenny and was Miss Moneypenny. And that wasn't the image that I had of my career. So it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. I just wasn't really taking it very seriously. It wasn't like, oh, this would be an amazing next step. Um, and so I wasn't really that, I wasn't nervous at all. Um, I turned, I also thought I was wrong for the role. I, I, I again, because she had created such an iconic image of Money Penny as being, I don't know, she had that wonderful mixture of, of being, um, comfortable, almost, almost sort of, um. Like a like a an, an aunt with a twinkle, you know. There was a kind of womanly yes. Yes. that could go oh, you know, there, there, there. I'll put the kettle on and make it all all right, or could suddenly turn and be be actually, you know, quite quite sexy or quite twinkly or you know, hold a crush. But she 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 yeah she she had a very specific flavour, and I thought, no, I'm not, I'm I'm just not that assuming that they wanted to take it on in the same way. Mm -hmm. So I went up for the audition and I'm sitting in the room, um, the waiting room with a few other, a few other girls and the door opens and, and a a girl walks out who I think, Oh, she's exactly right. She's exactly got that quality. She's much Mm -hmm. younger, but she's got that quality that Lois had. And, and then they said, Oh, Caroline, you're next in. So I, Walked in the door, and there's Cubby Broccoli, there's uh, Barbara Broccoli, there's Michael Wilson, the writer, there's uh, a couple of other people, and uh, and I sit down, and and Cubby says, "So Caroline, how do you see the new Miss Money Penny?" And I really had to stop myself from saying, "Well, the girl that just walked out the door is perfect," because <laughs> I genuinely felt
1: wow, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and I I bit my lip and I described myself, you know. And, and they laughed. And again, I'm with Americans, so I know the the tone. You know, mm-hmm. I know where we can go with it. And we're all at ease with with each other. And it just was very easy. Um, and, and and that was kind of it, really. We chatted for a bit. I left. I, there was nothing to read. You know, there was no script yet. Really? Um, and I didn't think anything more of it. And then I heard a week and I was doing a play at Hampstead Theatre at the time. And a week later, I, my agent phoned up and said, they'd like to see you on set um, and have you meet Tim Dalton. Mm-hmm. And I assumed they were probably doing this with a few a few of us, like a recall, um, to see how we looked and how we fitted. So again, I wasn't thinking too much about it and, you know, glammed up and turned up at Pinewood Studios. And, um, and that was quite extraordinary because that was the first time I'd ever been on a movie set and a Bond movie set is probably even more extraordinary than a normal movie set. Um, and it was, it was so exciting. It was larger than life in this massive kind of airplane hangar with pools of light and different scenes being shot and, um, the crew working in hushed voices at the, you know, just experts at the top of their game. It was a wonderful atmosphere. And, um, and out of the darkness strolled towards me, Tim in his, in his, you know, tux or whatever, just looking, you know, like James Bond. And luckily I had seen him on stage playing mm-hmm. Geo not long ago. And, and he was wonderful. And they, we had a couple of actors friends in common and so I was able to say um oh I you know I saw you on stage and I thought you were great and 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 we were able to chat and talk about these other actors because I think he's also quite a shy man underneath the exterior Mm -hmm. and and I was quite shy and it could have we could have just sort of stood there looking looking like idiots really so it was quite good to have had something to break the ice. And we chatted for a bit and, and actually it was easy. And and then I left and I, you know, got to Hampstead Theatre and I did the show and I walked off stage that night and I walked into the bar and there was my agent sitting with the casting director holding up glasses of champagne saying, congratulations, here's to the new Miss Moneypenny.
1: And that's a wonderful, wonderful way of having it toasted and finding out, I think that's...
0: Well, do you know, I, uh, the size of my ego was such that I my first reaction was, hang on a minute, we haven't had the conversation of whether this would be a good move or not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't say that in front of the casting director. No. <laughs> so I took my glass of champagne and went, thank you, cheers.
1: <laughs> Interesting what you're saying about the fact that you sort of didn't think you'd be the right person for the role. it's. It, I remember listening to an interview uh, where I interviewed Mark Hamill and they're to him about the fact that he ended up playing the Joker in, and you thought, there's no way he'll cast me in this role. It's not going to happen at all. When he completely relaxed, did his thing and then said, when he found out he got the role, he couldn't even remember what he'd done. <laughs> I was sort of panicking. But they're like, we've got playback. You'll be fine. You'll be fine.
0: Wow. Well, that's exactly it. Exactly. It's always good when you just relax and you're yourself. And then if it's meant to flow, it flows.
1: So you gone into this... I mean, it's a huge juggernaut when it comes to. Well, I'm assuming it's a huge juggernaut from the way you've described it of working yeah. on Bond. Um, and it sounds like you have you have a very, you know, very good relationship with people you work with. Do you stay in touch with any of them still?
0: Um, no, but what's lovely is that is that there are uh, occasionally I will do a, a Bond signing or a Bond event, mm-hmm. and um, Gareth Malone. This lovely guy who, who, uh, sometimes organizes events, sort of keeps us all in touch and I'll, and I'll turn up and some of them will be related to the film that I was in or some of them will be general bond things. But, but it sort of becomes a little family and, uh, and it's always a delight, you know, every few years to, to see some of them again. But, um, no, it, I mean, you know, you have to think that I was on it for only a few days. Yes. They were on it for long periods of time and, and really did develop friendships, whether they're still, you know, those friendships are still going or not, you know, but they, they will always have that deep connection. But I, I was on it for a very, very short period of time.
1: So you obviously then, you, you know, the, the living deity is very well received. You are embraced in the role of money Penny, And then you come to your second bond, which was working on License to Kill. Um, it was only a very small scene you seemed to have in that. I was surprised at how short that scene actually was. Um, was there any more to the scene that you were aware of? Was anything removed from it? Or was it that, that sort of, love, you know, that sort of s- just a small scene?
0: Well, it's funny that you should ask that because it, it reminds me, It brings it brings that time back to me because, first of all, I was also surprised. That was the scene. And I remember thinking, oh... But I could see. I think they explained to me, or did they even bother? Um, that that because Bond had gone kind of off piece, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And at that point, of course, in the later films, in the more recent films, Money Penny can follow them out and come yeah. out. Of this. But in those days, they were still sort of sticking to you know the the, the format. Mm-hmm. So Money Penny was in the office, and. Um, they just, I just think they hadn't really thought where, where that could fit in. So, so the office scenes were quite minimal. Um, I think Q is the one that goes out to him. So Money, mm. Money didn't really have much to play in, in that whole thing. Um, so I could sort of see why I only had a scene, um, but what was extraordinary about <laughs> about that scene, or not that scene in particular, but about that film, was that the Bond people always looking to save money uh, <laughs> cut corners shall we say um, <clears throat> skating on um, had tried <laughs> had
1: tried no more will be said <laughs>
0: <laughs> had tried to move the whole kit and caboodle out to Mexico thinking it might be cheaper to film the whole thing in Mexico right so which I think they realized they ran into so many more difficulties. It was, it was so much less easy to film out there that, that they probably ended up spending the same amount, you know, but they, so they moved the whole thing out to Mexico. So instead of my scenes being filmed at Pinewood, I was flown out to Mexico city to film that one, that one scene. So I, I, Again, my great friend, Terence Damp, says, I, I'm telling him about it, and he's going, oh, I've got a fantastic guy that I know who's brilliant at uh, at, at flights. He said, if they give you a first-class ticket return, which they're bound to, he said, um, you know, ring this guy up, um, because I said, I think I want to travel around a bit, you know, I'm, I'm only going out for four days, you know, it mm-hmm. seems to be silly to go to Mexico for that period of time. So I phoned this, this, I think he was was working as a travel agent, and and he advised me how to change my ticket, to downgrade my ticket and use the rest of the money to buy all these other flights. So I had a flight from Mexico down to Isla Mujeres. Um, I was then going to, so I, I arrived in Mexico City. I filmed my one scene. I flew down to Isla Mujeres. I traveled right across uh, Mexico to the to the other coast, to uh, Oaxaca, and um, having the most incredible, that was a really enlightening time. That was a mm-hmm. very extraordinary time for me in visiting all the Mayan tombs and just getting to know myself. And um, then from there, I got an internal flight back up to Mexico City, um I remember walking onto the Bond set and uh they were filming the casino scene and nobody recognized me because I (laughs) had this sort of dark tan this kind of wild hair and my one pair of shorts and t-shirt that I'd lived in for you know half many weeks and uh and this radiant look on my face of you know just fabulous whereas I'd left there quite stressed and you know tired and Uh, jet-lagged with the flight. Anyway, I then had an internal flight up to Santa Fe um, where I had a couple of contacts and I spent some time there. And then I went over to LA and I arrived in LA and this was my big moment to, okay, this is my first step to being the movie star.
1: I'm going to shine moment.
0: I'm going to shine moment. So I had my little rucksack and I had one dress in my rucksack that I carried around Mexico. Um, I had a place to stay. I, I, you know, I had a couple of contacts through the Bond film, obviously. Mm -hmm. One of them was quite a big deal casting director. I phoned her up and I said, I had I because I, I just had all the patter. I said, "Oh, I'm just off the plane uh, from the latest Bond film, and I thought I'd come back via LA. And and um, you know, I'm a very successful actress in England, and I thought I'd see what if there was anything out here for me. And people were like, "Oh my God, yes, you know, come and meet me this afternoon.
1: I like so, it. So you've got to sell yourself. You sell. Yeah. And- those. Those excellent moments, good thinking.
0: It was it was perfect. So so I all doors opened to me. I ended up with you know a top guy, William Morris, uh, saying, "Oh my God, she's going to be the next Glenn Close. This is amazing. Um, you know, we have to take her on." It was you know it really was. This is this is happening. So I had this. I had an agent. I was sent up for a couple of jobs, but. I had said, and I you know, I'm still living out of my out of my rucksack, really. Yes. And I'd said to everybody uh, back home and my agent that I would do this play starting in January. So we were sort of October time now that I'm in l a. and I I, <clears throat> I thought, well, what I'll do, this is obviously working, is I'll go back home and I'll do the play, I'll get myself together. I'll, you know, sort of tie up some loose ends. I'll give my family a hug and I'll come back out, you know, and give it six months or give it a year. I'll come and see, see what's here for me. Um, and so, and <laughs> so, you know, that's what I did. And I, and I said to everyone, right, well, I'll be back. And I went back home and I did the play. And then I went up for um, the Paradise Club, which was a very difficult job. The energy on it was quite difficult, quite dark, and uh, the girl who I was stepping in for, um, she'd played the the lead policewoman for a while, and she was stepping out, I think through illness, um, and I, I think it was just quite a stressful job, and I and I and I took it on thinking I can earn some money before I go out to America again, yeah. and um, it, it just I. In doing the job, I started then uh, on a much deeper internal journey of actually, who am I really? And um, at that point, the Bond film I think came out, and mm-hmm. I, got, I got these phone calls from America. I'll never forget it. Saying, "Caroline, have they cut most of your role?" <laughs> 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 Because of course I'd done this whole number of, you know, mm. I'm starring in the next one, you know, Miss Money Penny in their mind has got this huge part. <laughs> They're like, what, what happened? So uh yeah, it just from from that from that moment things took on, things took a very different direction. And when by the time I I mean they weren't judging me, they were mm. just kind of what happened. Uh, but it did make me smile. I thought, mm, yeah, okay, reality. Um, <laughs> But when I got back out to America, I was a very different person, and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't do the spiel anymore. I couldn't do the sell. I was, I'd had, I'd gone too far inside.
1: Right. Now, when it comes to just looking back on on the films, I'm, I'm always intrigued to try and work out: is it, is there ever any future? F- Does does the casting people, the producers or anybody, they come to you and say, all right, we have done that film. Here is the, the, that you will be, you know, to prepare for the next film, or is it literally a film-by-film basis?
0: Um, Well, the Bond films are um, dependent on Bond. Right. And um, I don't know the full story because I'm not really, you know, I was never really involved in the whole Mm -hmm. Bond thing. Um, But I, I think that, potentially if Tim had carried on then I would have carried on as his money penny mm-hmm. but with Tim not continuing and with peers coming in I, I think they just you know everything changed didn't it yes. yeah um,
1: and it was very interesting as I understand it uh, that you were replaced by someone you actually know in the shape well, of Samantha bond
0: not just somebody I know but a but a a, a good old friend who I had been to grammar school with we both trained at the ballet rombert and we had both turned up at the same audition weekend for the bristol old vic and both got in and both gone to the bristol old vic together so i mean our lives were mirroring each other and bless her heart she she couldn't bear to tell me because you know she thought she was uh, stealing I mean, your role, mate. stealing my role. Yes, and uh, she felt awful, and so and I didn't. To be honest, I I hadn't known they were they were recasting because I didn't know the situation with Tim. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if they'd recast her and Tim was doing it, that might have felt a little bit. Yeah. But because Tim wasn't doing it, mm-hmm. also my life had changed, and I really was beginning to pull back from acting. And look at the role of the ego and all of that and so and I and I kept phoning her and getting her answer machine and eventually I phoned and and a friend of hers picked up the phone and said oh oh has she not spoken to you yet and by the time she phoned me I thought something so awful had happened as you would think yeah yeah that I was I was prepared for something ghastly so when she said Darling, I'm so sorry. I don't know how to tell you, but they've they've offered me money, Penny. It was just I laughed, you know. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and I and I said, well, I, if it's going to go to somebody, how wonderful that it's going to go to to such a good friend.
1: That what a wonderful way to look at it. Um, I was thinking you were also discussing, well, on discussing playing that role, obviously. the People do have concerns about time casting, uh, and obviously our our ego uh, is either sort of massaged or feels damaged by things like that. How did you feel about that? Did that ever enter your mind? A concern about time casting, how it would affect you as a person?
0: No, i I think I wasn't that kind of actor. Um, I think I, I think deep, what I call proper actors, probably think about that. Um, about the role of typecasting, about the direction they want to go in. Um, but as I've mentioned many times, that that sort of wasn't where I was at. So um, I think the ego massage comes in or the, or the sort of ego rejection comes in all the time more to do with how people treat you. It's mm-hmm. quite interesting as an actor. You are either somebody who is, um, very impressive you know the 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 figure of an actor is either really quite is held in awe by some people and uh, on the other hand you can be the lowest in the pecking order mm-hmm. you know you're under you sort of come last you know there's the producer the director the well even the casting director you know when you want the part when you need the part has more power than you do there's the writer there's um you know, the crew, the, the actor is kind of right. We're ready for you now. Come and stand on your, on your spot. And, and, and <laughs> and, and we'll clothe you. We'll give you the line. We'll light you. We'll direct you. It, you know, in some, some instances you, you just feel um, actually quite powerless. Mm. So, so you, you go, you literally go from one minute having your ego massaged, feeling on top of the world to the next minute, feeling like nobody, and the famous actor phrase of "you're only as good as your last job" mm. is horribly true.
1: Mm. So we come to what I consider to be the, the really interesting part of this. And everything before it has been interesting, Caroline. So don't think I don't mean like that. No, I know what you mean. That really whets my interest is that you you made a change. You made a really big change from pursuing the career and the life of an actor into going to a more Spiritual path, and obviously, there is the going back to your contact with Terence Stanley when he was sort of giving you the initial information about uh, the work of Krishnamati. Um, what prompted this big change in your life? What was because I'm assuming you can't, it, it's hard to describe it's like a light bulb moment, but what made you want to go onto this more spiritual path? Um, it was a or can it be described a light bulb moment?
0: Well. It was a slow process with various light bulb moments. So the process had started the minute I met Terence, the minute I read Krishnamurti, something had shifted within me or some a perspective had shifted. And as I say, I then hooked it onto being a star. I hooked it onto the ego. And um, then as I worked with this over the years when I was being an actress, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I had the insight that what I was doing was the the, the Krishnamurti teaching and non-dual Eastern philosophy is about uh, being free of the separate self, being free of the ego and this sense that we are um, uh, a, a, a psychologically separate entity um, that that lives its own truth. It's seeing beyond that to an eternal truth, to 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 a, a, a more a, an infinite truth and a deeper connection. Mm-hmm. And so, what I realised I was trying to do was um, uh, was sidestep myself, trying to get rid of myself in order to be in this lovely eternal peace. And which I, I intuited was there, but I couldn't reach. And so it began to be clear that with acting, that ego, that separate self was, was, was being fed. And I couldn't quite be the, 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 the deep seeker that I wanted to be while I was in my acting jobs. But at the same time, I didn't know what that meant, and mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't ever going to say, "Right, that's it. I'm stopping acting," because I would, I didn't know what else I would be. I mean, I was trained for that; that was my job. Yes, um, and I did. What I did intuit was that if ever I was to 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 do work such as I'm doing now, I had to be it. It wasn't something that I could feel. Oh, I, I, have taken a course, or I've learnt, or I, I've, I've kind of, you know, read the books, and I know what to say. I've got to. It's got to come from truth, mm-hmm. and so I can't do anything about that until I am it. Yes. So I just have to go with what life is bringing. So it was a sort of series of of, of kind of letting go, and then I worked on the Invisible Man with with um, my then to be husband um, Andy Seacombe. And, um, by this time I had, I had also dived into various forms of therapy, um, you know, trying to unpack the self, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, but, Mm -hmm. um, and then come back, you know, from a, from a state of knowing myself, come back to the teachings of Krishnamurti. And at the end of the job with Andy, there was a real light bulb moment. I was graced with a real awakening where my time bound self dissolved and I saw the whole movement of my life um, in perspective as a, as, as a journey to now and everybody's lives as a journey to now. And it was such a uh, a profound awakening of my consciousness that I knew nothing would be quite the same. But I didn't really know what that meant as far as what I was supposed to do. Um, And then it just so happened that life took me in the direction of being a parent. Right. we got married and and i and I got pregnant and and then all of that started so and and I didn't want to be a working mother i mm. i really you know having having um had bless her heart a wonderful mother but a not very motherly mother um right. and coming from a, a whole history of women in the family who are not necessarily cuddly mothers
1: right
0: okay. i really wanted to immerse myself and do the best i could um in in yeah in in being a mother of of our two sons so it i naturally started moving away from acting i never said my i, I had a most wonderful agent dallas who who had always said to me you're too spiritual for this business mm. and he kind of gently watched me go down my route without ever saying to me well, come on, Caroline, you know, are you on my books or not? He just, he just, it was another very lovely presence in my life. He just kind of gently let go. But I always knew there was a lifeline, or certainly for for quite a while, I knew there was a lifeline. I I hadn't made any decision. I was just going with what was coming.
1: So obviously you were married, you've had children. How does the self prepare for that? How do you, or can you prepare for the changes that, impact on you as a person becoming a parent
0: well you can't as you rightly say you can't prepare for it in any way because you can't know the experience or how it's going to particularly affect you until it's happening and um, from a perspective of my inner journey it was it was perfect but I but I couldn't see at the time how perfect it was so mm-hmm. I had, gone on a deep journey of uh knowing that i wanted the peace beyond the self then realizing that actually i didn't know myself at all Mm -hmm. and i needed to unpack myself and uh get you understand and also i wasn't i wasn't i think when i was young again not being very present i wasn't very good at feeling my emotions at digesting my emotions at acknowledging my emotions mm-hmm. so all the therapy work helped enormously with that i realized i'm a very emotional creature very empathetic uh, feel emotions to a great degree and uh so having having really gone to the root of that and and unpacking my family, my you know all my traumas, my problems, the some of the you know difficult experiences I'd had through my life. Mm-hmm. Having unpacked all of that, having come back to the teachings of Krishnamurti, having had this moment of everything falling away, there was still further to journey because I think what happened is that is that in there, I I began to feel I, I think I'm ready to teach. I think I'm yes. ready to communicate to people I don't quite know what it is I need to communicate but I can feel that that you know I'm ready and I think there was a further battering of the ego to come because the moment that I was uh pregnant and going into motherhood um I was totally thrown I I I I think I thought oh from this position of Enlightenment. I'm I'm just gonna be the most wonderful mother because I'm Mm. gonna bring up this child without ego. It's just gonna be amazing.
1: (laughs) It'll all fall into place.
0: It'll all fall into place, you know. This is how you bring up a child, it's just obvious. And oh my god, you know, (laughs) both boys came along and went, think again. You think you're free of the ego? Well, we're just going to bash you over the head. <laughs> you are far more angry, reactive. You know, d- your self is going to be shown to you in all its all its hideous glory, in a way that only you know children can. Mm. Um, and so I, ha- I I kind of lost everything. I lost everything and 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 hit a deep humility of right. really not knowing. And, and, and that it was a kind of real bottoming out of, OK, you know, I, I, I get it. So there's a, I think there's a, a, a spiritual um, Zen saying of, of chopping wood and cleaning rice mm-hmm. or something, you know, until you can do that without ego, without needing to be anything at all. You are not ready. You know? mm. and, and it felt like that. It felt like I needed 10, 15 years of chopping wood and cleaning rice um, and going, but I want to, you know, I want to be, I want to be of use. I want to be somebody. You know? I've, mm. got this, I've got this wisdom. And it's like, no, you haven't. No, you haven't. You're just a mum. Just get in the car. Just put the laundry on. Just make the children's food. You know, just you don't know anything. And postnatal depression and you know two very demanding extraordinary boys. Mm-hmm. Um, we struggled with money. you know it was it was being part of the struggle of existence. Mm-hmm. And what that eventually gave me was the link between the search for self-love, of the Western teachings and the freedom from the self of the Eastern teachings. And the link for me is the emotional body, which is manifested as the inner child. And it's like, there is a part of us that says, I've come to this earth with gifts. And in order to use those gifts, I need to learn wisdom and compassion And for instance, if you had a room full of new mothers and a woman stood on stage telling them all, these are my 20 points to being a perfect mother, and she goes through them all and they all make sense. And the women are like, oh, this is great. And then one woman says, so how many children have you had? And she says, oh, I haven't had children. You can imagine that Mm. the whole room would go, oh, (laughs) you know, you try... You know, difficult birth, you know, uh, colic child or not being able to feed or worrying about this or no husband or, you know, you try all of that mm. this nights, and then come back and tell us how to be the perfect mother. And it's kind of I feel it's the same with our journey on this earth. We come to this earth and we have to learn why it is human beings are not living in peace and harmony with each other and earth, why we don't choose love, why we don't choose um, our altruistic sense of how to live, um, because we get stuck in this subjective, reactive relationship mm-hmm. to life. And I saw so clearly that it's a, each of us has a perfect journey with a perfect array of obstacles to teach us that wisdom and compassion, and only in understanding and digesting and um, being fully aware and compassionate with the self, in our in our acknowledging of these difficulties of suffering, of rage, of anger, um, can we begin to uh, bring that, that alchemical love and compassion to the root of ourselves and therefore to others? Therefore, each self then becomes not separate from ourself. And so the, the, the rippling out of awareness of, of actually I am no different My story is different and my packaging is different, but I am no different from the rest of mankind.
1: And that's that's a very, well, to me, that's a wonderful way of looking at it, because one of the things that I've found, not just myself, that sounds terribly, well, (laughs) egotistical, but in general, the the West has this real problem with the fact we compare ourselves so much to everybody else. We should have the, if someone does it this way, we should do it this way or better. Yeah. Do you, uh, well, you know, the the thing of the, the comparison issue, do you think this can be overcome? Is it possible to do it? Is there a way of doing it?
0: I think it's really hard. I think comparison is, you're absolutely right. It is, it is one of the roots of why mankind is, unable to flower and um and live in harmony because when we as soon as we compare ourselves to another we're stuck in separation Mm -hmm. stuck in we're stuck in ego and social media is all about comparison schooling is all about comparison a lot of families um are all about comparison to your brother, your sister, or or the ideal of how you should be. Our psyches, mankind's psyche, part of the movement of the brain has become about comparison. And even when people have let go of comparing themselves to other people, for instance, they may then compare themselves to the ideal they hold about themselves. Or then they compare themselves to how spiritual they're being. Mm. Or, oh, I I felt really in the flow yesterday and I was really in my heart and today I'm not. So, oh, God, I've got it wrong and I want to find that again. I mean, the brain is constantly, constantly comparing. And I think to try and stop the brain comparing brings us into conflict with ourselves because we are comparing. So Mm. we'd have to control the brain to stop comparing. So the only the only direction is to is to actually bring a greater amount of awareness to the fact that we're constantly comparing. And then, as with any issue, to really unpick and intuit it down to the root. So my problem with comparison might be different from, say, your problem with comparison. Mm And but it will show me the root. The the inner child will show me what the problem with comparison is. So was it that I was compared to my brother, or was it that I was compared to other people at school, or was it that um, I was bullied and um, told I was rubbish, or was it that? Do you know what I mean? It will come back to um, a very real thing. So to start with a sort of generalised, we shouldn't compare. Um, will only take us down a kind of well. We should therefore not compare, and then and then we're not with we're not working with what is. Whereas when we get to really know ourselves and, and the root of ourself, as I say, this 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 kind of inner child, we can then go ah that when I compare, I'm I'm back into a scenario that I know inside. And when we when we take the attention and the love and uh, there, we realise that each time we compare now, we're give we're given uh, an opportunity or a gift to actually bring compassion to the root of that self that had been compared from the start. If that makes sense, mm. so so every moment is a gift of understanding so the the reason for me that the that the inner child is 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 important it isn't it isn't the 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 end game but the inner child is 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 a really important bridge is because for instance um we might sit in meditation with lovely music and a and a, and a candle or whatever um and and be longing to find you know inner peace and stop the brain for, from comparing Um, or stop the brain from worrying or being anxious or or all the things that the brain does. Um, and, And actually what's happening is that the self, the inner child is saying, yeah, but I'm I'm actually needing to look at this stuff. I'm needing to learn wisdom and compassion. I can't let go of it yet because mm. you haven't you haven't unpacked me. You haven't looked at me and I'm in pain or I'm angry or I'm confused. So don't just push me aside and make me find peace, you know. Mm. I'm not ready. <laughs> Whereas when the child has been heard, when we've really when we've found that that inner sense of self-acceptance and knowing and being with, not intellectually, but really viscerally in the the cells of our body, then it's the altruistic nature of the inner child to say, oh, okay, now, now it doesn't need to be about me. Now I'm ready to actually... See what the good of the whole is. Now I'm really ready to let go of my story and my needs for the good of the whole. And that becomes then the entrance into the spiritual life. So, is that,
1: if I understand it, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the fact that to sort of move forward, you've got to be able to forgive yourself and others of the things that have happened in your life. And without doing that you kind of you are stuck in the, the moment of being unable to unable to, to address issues and move forward it can feel impossible to do that going off my own experiences you can feel that there's something you can never do what advice can you give about for a person who wants to do that who wants to try and forgive maybe themselves or forgive others how, how easily can it be done can it
0: be done okay so absolutely it can be done but it's a, it's a it's a total journey it's not something that is easily done because mm-hmm. it needs to be done with total perception um, understanding and seeing is the key not intellectually but through the heart and when i th- i think we can't forgive others until we have, uh, we can, but I mean, we can't truly understand the nature of of forgiving others something truly terrible, unless we understand the nature of self-forgiveness. And therefore, those times that we feel we failed, or we've acted in a way that we shouldn't have acted, instead of that being wrong, that itself was a teaching for us
1: mm-hmm.
0: and some of the most spiritual people have to fail in order to understand self-forgiveness in order to understand really the root of what forgiveness is so the root of forgiveness is going back and reliving in a way from the perspective of who we were then and seeing all the building blocks of what went into that moment and the building blocks were not just ourselves they were patterns upon patterns of who we thought we were, information from parents, from siblings, from wider family experiences we'd had, cultural references. The whole movement of the self is is made up of so many patterns upon patterns and influences upon influences. And we don't see this. We just see each instance on its own, but by the time we come to do something or something happens for which we can't forgive ourselves, we have already been so impacted. The self has been so formed that we mm. actually it, it, it's almost like the, the the not that we don't have a choice. That's that's not what I mean. But it's like it's like this. that We act in a certain way and we don't see that that was we were being propelled to act in a certain way to learn forgiveness mm-hmm. there is no there is nothing ever wasted in the universe there's no action that's random or that's wrong it, it is all about acceptance and learning and the energy that ripples out from self forgiveness yes maybe one can't put right with the person or the incident that happened then but it also that will have been something that that person or people or whatever also had to learn from and experience. But when the 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 the, the energy that ripples out from profound self forgiveness starts to really deeply shift how you see everyone else's behavior, because you begin to see and those things that have happened to you that that maybe you you know, each one of us can't forgive somebody else for, immediately that's all opened up and we begin to see that forgiveness is not I forgive you for that, but is a complete acceptance of the whole movement of what happened from a completely different perspective, from a from a greater perspective of love and wisdom.
1: Well that's it's it's clearly not an easy thing to do, but no you know, it makes an awful lot of sense. Well, you've said an awful lot of sense on how how you can deal with those, deal with well, the, the whole thing of forgiveness and sort of moving forward from things.
0: Yes, you... and I have seen in my work, you know, profound things forgiven. So it's not mm-hmm. just an idea, you know, mm. I, I, I have worked with forgiveness a lot.
1: So you made... The decision to change your career from what it had been in acting into looking at into sort of well, you run retreats, you run talks. i mean, treat to know how do you overcome the fear factor of the, this this big change from going from what you know to to a whole whole change in what you're doing, whole change in career.
0: Um, again, it, it's a very good question because the the human being will feel fear. Mm. And at the heart of my work is this acceptance of the human being before we can move move on and go beyond the indiv- individual human being. So so the, the witness of self or the, the 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 beingness is is beyond fear. It's free. Mm. But the human being has to live on a day-to-day basis. And has to pay the mortgage and yeah. you know has to live in the west and and i often say to people that i'm you know to some of my groups when they've gone you know very deep and and often into this question and i say i can't, i kind of almost have an image of of maybe in a in another lifetime or, or what have you we were living in the east and we were we were taken into a monastery very young and we were nurtured and uh, taught the spiritual life, and and you know were enlightened, and it was it was all just wonderful. And and then you know this idiot here said, "Hang on a minute, that that was a little bit easy. What if we were manifested in the West? <laughs> you know, mortgages and kids and stress, and you know, no recognition of the spiritual life, no help at all. You know, not much guidance. You know, that's the challenge, surely. How, you know, and 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 unless that's possible, unless that's relevant, then. Then actually, what's it all about? So mm. so let's take so you know so let's take on the challenge, and and I think the challenge in the West. I mean, we're using East West in a very very old-fashioned kind of limited way, but I think we understand what we mean. There's sort of the, the old East and and the sense of spirituality and the very materialistic West, should we say? So I I think the thing is that the that the self. Has to be part of the picture. The compassion for self in the West is the key to then being free of the self, as I've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So, whenever there's fear around moving into the unknown, which of course there has been, you're absolutely right. Can I do this? You know, is it's hugely, you know, it's um, can I take on the responsibility of? you know, guiding or speaking to other people. I can't do anything for another person. I can only, you know, open and make it possible for that person. Um, and and will this work? And what does that mean about day-to-day life? And all of these things, the, the person goes through that. But I think when when there's a, a, a sense of the, the beingness, knowing uh, or, or residing in the rightness of it, then there's a seeing if it flows, so to speak. So, so people began to come to me, um, and word of mouth, you know, just spread, mm-hmm. and in in a really little gentle way, um, which was perfect for me, you know, to learn and to and and my my work has grown and formed from the 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 beauty of the people that have come to me the questions they've asked the needs they've had the journey they've taken the the trust that people have put in me uh with their story with their journey has formed the work i've just been open to what that is if that makes sense
1: I mean, it, 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 yeah, it does. it's a very, it's a beautiful thing you're doing. You are helping people. You are really deep helping people improve their lives, and that's that is a wonderful thing to hear. That somebody's doing because, unfortunately, you don't hear that enough. You really do not hear that
0: enough. Mm. Well, it's it's a hard one because the 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 well being. Uh, uh, sector shall we say has grown ridiculously in the last five years you know mm-hmm. the whole it, it's a kind of you know there's a bandwagon
1: yeah, yeah. Quite- I know what you mean
0: yeah and 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 it gives it brings a lot of help to a lot of people I'm not I'm not judging it but I'm not that you know if you're right. not that I'm not I'm not anything I'm not an ism I'm I, you can't package what I do so so it's quite, it's quite difficult to, you know, I'm not somebody or something that I can be marketed. <laughs> and I guess that's why I had to learn humility because otherwise the ego of the actress from way back might have jumped on to a bandwagon and allowed myself to become something and that would have been completely wrong. And that would have been very hard to unpick.
1: And does her ego ever reappear at the back of your mind at all?
0: Well, yes, because my the 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 thing is that the self is always the self. This is this is the conundrum. Is people want people think that when they do this in a work they'll they'll, you know, the bits of themselves that they don't like will, will sort of drop away or be Lowered on the yes. Yeah you know, and, and they'll change. But, but that it's not that it's that the self is the self. And, and my, my ego is, um, is the key to me understanding everyone else's ego. So it's not like, oh, I don't have it anymore. Because then I, then I would be teaching from a place of not compassion of, oh, well, It's a different. It's like well, you don't need that anymore. You can drop it. But, but actually, I mean, I don't need to act on it anymore, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't get in the way anymore. But it's the key to my understanding when other people talk about their egos. I don't say, oh well, I had that, and I don't have it anymore. That wouldn't really be very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> <Don't>. <laughs> you're like, well no, how do you, do, how do you, do, you know how do you live this on a day-to-day basis? That's that for me that's much more relevant and, and that's what the Eastern teachers of enlightenment were not really giving us a clue to because there was a sense of you reach a state and and once you've reached that state, it's all over and you don't have to worry about it anymore. And that's the beauty for me of one of the beauties of Krishnamurti's teaching is that he has never taught that. He has always said it is a moment-by-moment moment living. And and I think that's really important.
1: I agree. I really do agree. What what do you say is the most challenging and rewarding part of your work? Well, oh, sorry, what's the most challenging part? What's the most rewarding part? I didn't word that very well, sorry.
0: Uh I think the most challenging part is um is what we've touched on is is because we're living in the West and and, and I'm supposed to sort of run a business, do you know what I mean? Mm. And what you do isn't a business, mm. um, that that's very challenging for me to to actually trust that I can sit in my truth and that the it will come to me. I, obviously, I need to put it out there. I have a yes. sort of, you know, I've, I've made a Facebook page, but I, I I don't pay it a lot of attention uh, because I'm not very good at all that. I don't mm-hmm. really, know, you know, but but it's lovely to have a connection to people. I don't really like the ethos of Facebook, but I'm not quite sure what to do otherwise. But so it's there and i and i love the fact that i can you know occasionally post something on it and that people can people can reach me i have a website which which someone helped me make and i love but the the you know the when the western brain comes in and goes well you you know you're not doing anything you're not organizing this you're not out there or someone says to me god you should be all over this you should be this you know yeah. it's it's the challenge is trusting that the the right people always find me and because this work is not easy and it's not for everyone not everyone wants to truly go to the depths that I go mm-hmm. um, uh, therefore the, those people that, that have looked deep enough find me or that know that they're ready to work with me know that they're ready and that I, I am quite a, a gentle soul I'm not someone who's you know wanting to process, you know, millions in in uh, group chats or you know <laughs> talks is not it's uh, that's not kind of who I am with this work. Um actually my my trusting that it is growing organically is right for me, but it is a challenge. Yes. Um and the rewards are obvious. I mean the rewards are obvious seeing and witnessing and being part of people's lives profoundly changing uh, is just so humbling and glorious. And
1: when you're running your retreats or or the workshops you run, for any any of my listeners who would be interested in 10 of them, what sort of things happen and what can we expect? Obviously, each one will be different because the people you're dealing with, Auditor General sort of template in the way the room? yes
0: yes yes there is um, so the retreats are structured again the retreats have taught me um, how they go so uh, there are a series of retreats now that have that have um, manifested really which is lovely so the first retreat anyone coming to the first retreat. Uh, will be spending, so they're Friday to Sunday. They're, they're quite short, the first retreats. So it's like a real taster, a real dip, a dive into this work. It's, mm-hmm. it's quite intense. Um, and the person will be um, able to explore for the first uh, couple of days, able to really explore what the root of them themselves is, um, they bring, all, all people need bring is their story, uh, which we're all aware of our story. And um, it, with a group who are also nervously, you know, everyone is, is, is very nervous because yes. it's a big thing. To yeah. to. But uh, with a group of other people who are also bringing their story and their vulnerability We create a space where we begin to not only unpack the the root of each person's self, but there is a sense of shared humanity. There's a sense of shared experience. Um, We look at the nature of compassion for the self. Uh, There's often a big shift in those first few days. And then on the third day, Usually, by that time, people are kind of opened up and ripe to experience going beyond the self. So we look at stepping back into the witness of the self and uh, um, emerging with, uh, with, with with the energy of all that is, with 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 love, with um, the sense of the one movement of life. Uh, a deep, deep sense of peace, and uh, from that, people then have the the uh, first of all a lovely sense of themselves and the world when they leave, but also the the tools to start moving forward in their day to day life using this work. And then, as I say, um, at any at, at, at given, it's all very new. This this, the work and the setup of the retreat, not the work, but the setup of the retreats. Um, yes. But there, there are then, as I say, some people from number one retreats will, will start to make noises like, yeah, we, we actually would really like another retreat. And so at the moment we kind of organically put one in and, uh, and then, and then that group, I've got now two or three groups Uh, all three groups moving forward i've got one group who are on their sixth retreat and are absolutely glorious they're kind of like you know leading this work forward um so that's how it's happening
1: i'm speaking for my own self but i'm sure for the people who will be listening if we wish to book on to the retreats and attend any events you're running how how are we best doing that
0: please so i have a website which is carolinebliss.co.uk and uh, all the details are on the website. My next number one retreat—obviously, people have to start at the first retreat. My next number one retreat is next March. Uh, what I often do with people is because I do work one to one, but I usually, um, if someone is interested in, in, in coming to a retreat and is and is is definitely coming, but they want to just have a session with me first that's fine you know i'm i'm uh, i i often work with people or someone who's come on the retreat and then is maybe facing something afterwards that they mm-hmm. feel they need guidance they can book in a one to one session with me so i do do one to one sessions but i don't anymore usually um unless somebody's abroad and a and a, and a slot has presented itself um, in which case, I can work on Skype with that person. I, I don't usually take on people just just for the one to one journey, um, because I don't have a, a, so much time, obviously, anymore to to just work with one to ones. It's it it is more it's more magical. It's more powerful, um, and it's it's it sort of works better when it's when it all gathers itself towards a group. So the information's all on on my website.
1: Excellent. <laughs> Now, Caroline, you have a book. I
0: have a book. A
1: Compassionate Heart. That's right. Please tell us a bit about, uh, well, uh, what you can about it, obviously not spoil the reading experience for anybody, and how we can purchase it.
0: Well, I've always wanted as as I do this work and as I've as I've discovered what the work is, as I say. I've wanted to give people a tool that they can take away and have to continue or to start doing this work because almost everyone that works with me says, you know, in between being with you, what can I read? What can Mm. I, you know, I'll obviously give people an idea of what to do, but, you know, we love a book, don't we? We love the words of the person. Um, Certainly I've loved, you know, the, the various um, books that I've had, you know, the certain books will live by my bed in the past, you know, mm-hmm. it's like really soaking it up. So I know how important it is to have a guide. And I think a book can be a lovely guide, especially if you, if you know the person or you're working with a person or if you're, if someone has said, well, this is interesting work, but you're feeling a bit like, Oh, I'm not sure. And how would I go about you know entering this path looking inward some people have a deep sense of the spiritual path but have never thought about looking inward you know it, 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 at the, at their own story at their own lives with respect to that and some people are struggling with themselves and haven't really considered a spiritual path but when they when they hear about it they think oh oh that sounds interesting but mm-hmm. I know so mm-hmm what i've tried to do with the book i'm a very logical practical person and a lot of esoteric teachings i think can be very um misleading or hard to grasp and they also don't encompass the the as, as a, the first part of the work which is which is finding out about the self and a lot of therapy books are quite good at you know the unpacking of the self bit but but don't encompass the the, um, the spiritual essence of of um, the teaching that I feel is important the non-dual sense of love so uh the going beyond the self so so what I've what I've done with the book is is it's literally a kind of a, an a to Z of the journey so it's very practical you know we start here this is why <laughs> this is mm. what it's about. Yep. This is what this is how you go uh it you know forward into step by step looking at yourself, finding out about yourself. This is what we do, try this exercise. It, it's like it's like you're sitting with me for various sessions and, mm. and that's that's the book.
1: Excellent. How do we go about purchasing it, please?
0: Well, it's going to be sold on my website because once again, I just want to start it very organically. Yes. Everyone I've worked with bless them they're kind of you know they've been asking about a book and and i so i know that it will go to them and it will go out from them to their friends and other people and and word of mouth and and hopefully from this podcast today and this conversation today so it'll go out again very gently organically so my website has a page about the book and there is a paypal link um that that you know somebody can order the books um on the paypal link um i would advise you know i would i would i would ask please um if any of your listeners i'm not sure when this podcast will come out but if any of your listeners um, are interested in, in buying a book because this is very new. I mean, the books are arriving imminently. Uh, just have a little bit of patience um, with with when your book will be delivered. It will. Um, I will. You know. I will. It'll definitely come to you. But it's all very new for me of how to do this.
1: And good things always come to those who wait. So that's right. Exactly. Patience. Um, we're also. Obviously- you know, just coming to the end of our interview, uh, and are there any sort of future projects or events you're going to be at that you, you want to share with my listeners?
0: Well, yes, there are. There are, in fact, two two Bond events coming up. Um, I do this really lovely um, uh, work with a company called Cue the Music, uh, which is, I believe, how you contacted me because you said correct. Yeah, yeah. And um, they're an incredible band that's been put together by Warren Ringham and they play the Bond theme tunes like you've never heard them before. I mean, they really, the standard is exceptional. Um, And they've got two great singers and they put on these evenings of a journey through the Bond themes and they ask uh bond girls, ex-bond girls um to link those themes mm-hmm. um, And it's a it's you know, it's a really fun night out. So I'm doing one in Folkestone this Friday and then the following Friday and you'll hopefully know what that date is because I haven't got my diary in front of me. I believe that's the 6th of September. Thank Hope you. i right. <laughs> 6th of September. I shall be in Bradford, and I know that there are still some tickets left for that one for Cue the Music in in Bradford.
1: Well, Caroline, it's been an absolute pleasure interviewing you, and thank you so much on behalf of myself and my listeners for taking the time to actually you know speak to me today and tell me more about what you're doing. It's been absolutely fascinating. I think it'll be brilliantly educational for people, and I would heartily recommend to anybody who feels they need some help spiritually about learning about themselves
0: to get in contact with you. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure.